this is Josh Korda of Dharma Punks, New York. My Buddhist pastoral work is supported by donations only. If you'd like to help, Venmo Dharma Punks NYC or use the PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. I hope you enjoy this podcast and thanks for your support. Um, last Tuesday when um, I was uh, teaching, I didn't realize that I had already at the time contracted COVID-19 and uh, I had actually contracted it a few days before. Uh, my symptoms at the time were just uh, a headache, uh, chills, and uh, exhaustion, but I just put it down to having a seasonal head cold that I get sometimes during the winters, uh, but then tested positive. So it's not been pleasant by any means, kind of almost been like a tour of all the various symptoms that uh, one could go through during a, a seasonal, what feels like at times like a really bad cold, other times like a flu, ranging from the normal coughing and uh, headaches and exhaustion and fatigue through uh, every kind of uh, additional symptom imaginable. Today, it's been officially my 10th day since the original symptom showed up. Right now, I'm feeling a little nauseous, but uh, I guess it's a long-winded uh, mea culpa, just uh, Hopefully, I'll make uh, some sense and that I'll be able to uh, put something together worthy of your attention um, for tonight. Uh, tonight, I'm talking about the inner critic uh, and especially when the inner, inner critic becomes pathological and what we can do about it. So, we all have primitive unconscious, what could be known as bottom-up impulses or drives that are based on evolutionarily primed survival energies. These energies can be to attach to others for security, to consume as much food as possible, or uh, consume uh, that which provides us with a survival advantage. We have aggressive territorial impulses. We have fear impulses. We have libidinal impulses, and so on. And acting out on these drives without any impulse control can lead to social rejection, um, shunning, disconnection. And for much of our evolutionary history, social rejection, ostracization would lead to almost certainly annihilation. So I'm part of the uh, very fabric that makes our species uh, uh, so uh, 
capable of bonding is that we developed massive frontal lobes to inhibit the expression of these core bottom-up survival drives from the midbrain. So early on in life, we don't have the frontal lobe, which is inhibitory, fully wired. So if the child sees food it likes, it will eat it, regardless of whether the food is healthy or ready uh, to be consumed. Or uh, if the child sees another child with a toy, the child might aggressively attack that child for the toy. Um, it might express aggression against a helpless cat, or uh, it might, in seeking stimuli, wander out into a street. So socialization is essentially the development of impulse control courtesy of our massive frontal lobe. And its primary purpose is to uh, inhibit the pure expression of these core survival energies. Conscious egoic top-down processes inhibit our bottom-up drives long enough for suitable compromises to be found. That's what Freud called the role of the ego or consciousness is to become aware of our unconscious drives and to look around and to find socially acceptable ways of discharging these needs that won't get us into trouble. So for example, a child, all children have aggressive impulses, but over time, the child learns to sublimate, which means discharge its aggression in a socially acceptable way. Sports, uh, wrestling, uh, and so forth. Or the child might, via the parents, learn to consume food in a responsible way. The process of inhibition is maintained by an inner representation of family and social moral standards. And this is where we come to what Freud called the superego, um, or what today we more commonly call the inner critic or the inner tyrant. The first major psychologist uh, after Freud whose work focused on the development of this socializing uh, internal rule bearer or judge was Lev Vygotsky along with Anna Freud, Freud's daughter. Vygotsky noted that we develop inner speech as a simple repetition of the utterances that our parents and adults uh, say to us as a way to inhibit our drives. So for example, a two and a half year old child during the formation of inner thought uh, will, when the mother or father is not in the room, will say to herself the very things she would anticipate the mother saying if the mother was there. So for example, if a child's left alone to inhibit its own behaviors, it will say something 
like don't eat the cookie, don't run in the hall, don't, uh, you know, grab that from another child. So it's using words and thought as a way to steer itself away from antisocial behavior. And this is roughly when the age of the first signs of the inner critic or the superego starts to develop. It's essentially at first a tool that allows us when we're alone as a child without an adult to steer our behaviors to represent what the parent would say to us so that we don't get into trouble acting out on our core drives. According to Freud, the superego then uh, it, beyond simply representing the caregiver um, uh, starts to point the child towards higher social moral standards. In other words, while we, once we become a certain age, we could probably consume food, whatever we want, even though the parent wouldn't be aware. Uh, the role of the superego or inner critic is to create this higher set of standards of behavioral goals uh, so that even though we could get away with things, we don't do them because we somehow now have interjected into us a higher standard of moral behavior. Uh, according to Freud, the superego consisted of a conscience which punishes us with feelings of guilt and shame when we fall short of these familial standards or social standards. We also have an ego ideal, which is an image of what would be the highest estimation of self that we could aim for. So for Freud, the superego was very often a necessary factor that pushed us beyond just inhibition in situations where people could see and observe us towards an ongoing self-monitoring that would uh, urge us to comply with certain higher standards of behavior associated with our culture and whatnot. The superego, however, can, as Freud noted, and as so many psychologists have afterwards have noted, can become pathological, repressing entirely healthy sexual and connective needs. It can be disproportionately punishing for making entirely or ordinary and unavoidable mistakes. In some family systems, simply being needy or seeking physical touch and validation, or at times being unsure or frightened can be punished and can be deemed as unworthy and can lead to a lifetime of shame and a sense of <coughs> guilt for entirely healthy, normal behaviors. 
the psychologist Louis Casalino has, uh, in his wonderful book on human psychology, uh, noted that he believes that the formation of a pathological inner critic starts when children at a very early age after their parents tell them, no, stop, don't do that. If the child in the aftermath of getting a strict injunction, if the parent fails to then repair with a sense of attunement and compassion and kindness, the bond, the child remains stuck in this physiological state of shame over its action and now begins to associate failure with its sense of self. So for Casalino, the key to developing a healthy superego is the parent who after saying, don't run into traffic or don't you know, hit your sister or brother or don't, you know, eat the cookie or don't do whatever. If the parent follows up those uh, rules with a positive expression of, and I love you, and I'm just telling you this because I care about you, or just a hug or some kind of proximal touch. So for Casalino, the pathological inner critic is a failure to put a cap to the experience of essentially being criticized. And that state then becomes an ongoing felt sense of shame. Other psychologists such as um, uh, Brown and Elliot and uh, another uh, English psychologist whose name I'm temporarily forgetting, uh, believes that core shame and the toxic inner critic is sustained by a negative feeling that's evoked whenever we think about ourselves, whenever we hold an image of ourselves, whenever we see an image of ourselves in the mirror, it evokes somatic feelings of tightness. Whereas people who have a healthy inner critic, when they hear their name, or see their image in the mirror, they physically relax and feel comfortable. So for uh, Brown and Elliot, this is a the underpinnings of a toxic inner critic is somatic. It's physiological. It's on a, based on an association. When I think about myself, my body feels uncomfortable. If I have a healthy inner critic, when I think about myself, my body still feels comfortable. So how do we determine if our superego is pathological, besides uh, that previous point I just made? Well, one easy to follow technique is simply to ask ourselves, if anyone else verbalized the views that we repeat to ourselves or the standards that we hold ourselves to, if anybody else uh, verbalized these standards, if we would think them to be crazy or harsh, then it means that there's clearly something amiss. In other words, if somebody came along to you and 
in some dismissive way, harshly criticized you for uh, making a mistake or for <coughs> not being as uh, uh, perfect or uh, uh, achieving as much as you would like. If, and if you would normally defend yourself against such criticism and find the person to be overbearing, but you put up with those judgments internally, that means you've got a pathological inner critic. When it's difficult to seek attention for our positive achievements, i.e. when we have a form of imposter syndrome, uh, that's a clear sign that we have a pathologic, pathological inner tyrant or critic. Seeking validation for our achievements is a necessary developmental milestone. We are a social species and significant regions of the brain develop to reward us with dopamine when we achieve something positive for the group. If we are incapable of calling attention to our achievements or to our skills, then what, it doesn't mean that we are humble. It doesn't necessarily mean that we are right-sized. It actually can be a sign of a um, disproportionate dismissal of our own self-worth uh, as the result of a overbearing inner critic. When perfectionism becomes an impediment to fulfilling growth-oriented creative endeavors, for instance, if somebody offers us an opportunity to create something, to write something, to propose something, but due to an ongoing uh, sense that uh, we can't simply submit our ideas. We ha they have to be in a perfect state. And that ongoing editing and revising means we miss deadlines. That's almost certainly a sign of a pathological inner critic. When we become reliant on what's called reaction formation, which means a tendency to put aside our own views and opinions and to perform an inauthentic version of self or an inauthentic version of our views and opinions to others because deep down inside, there's a feeling that if other people really got to see our true unbridled core emotional states, they would reject us. That is another sign of a pathological inner critic. Finally, of course, the surest sign of a pathological inner critic is an over-reliance on negative reinforcement as a motivation. So what does that mean? Well, all of us, when it comes to new endeavors, whether it's doing our taxes, or fulfilling basic protocols of work, or uh, self-actualization to uh, develop new skills, capabilities, or creative endeavors, we all have to motivate ourselves. 
When we motivate ourselves in a healthy way, we rely on positive reinforcement, which has been shown again and again through clinical studies to be the most efficient way and the healthiest way to motivate behavior, which is, in other words, uh, not to tell ourselves, well, I should do this, and if I don't, I'm some kind of a failure, but rather, it would be great if I accomplish that to visualize positive outcomes and to reward our endeavor through dopamine resources of secretion rather than motivating endeavor by negative means, which is, if I don't do this, it means there's something wrong with me. Positive reinforcement is, if I do this, it will lead to positive results for me. It will lead to positive results for people I care about. And it will be rewarded with the pleasant sensations of efficacy and power that dopamine rewards us with. Negative reinforcement, trying to motivate uh, behaviors from doing paying bills to doing taxes to uh, doing chores um, has been shown to be extremely not only insufficient at motivating, it also leads to a surfeit of cortisol and stress hormones building up over time. And it leads to an even over time greater struggle to achieve the most basic milestones of self-care and so forth over time. In internal family systems, I should note, before I go to some of the solutions to a, a uh, harsh inner critic, uh, in IFS, they note seven different types of toxic inner critic. <coughs> Internal family systems is a form of therapy that focuses on the parts of our internal experience. And they tend to call the inner critic managers in general. Uh, some of the different types, I'm not gonna go over all seven, it would be a waste of time, but I think some of them will be familiar with us. The first is the perfectionist that sets impossible standards um, that essentially are there to rule out any possibility of being found wanted or any possibility of experiencing rejection. These standards are ever, or however, are so strict and so unattainable that they lead to a failure to accomplish the very things that um, the critic is there to assumedly motivate us towards. The taskmaster is uh, an inner voice, an inner form of the inner critic that uh, believes that any form of rest and self-care and rejuvenation is indulgent. The imposter, the underminder, underminer, uh, constantly doubts our skills and our credibility and feels uncomfortable if other people call attention to our good work. And the guilt tripper is a version of the inner critic that assigns disproportionate remorse 
to interpersonal setbacks. In other words, if we make a mistake, if we say something foolish, or we do something that anybody else does at times, however, it singles us out for ongoing punishment. So how do we start the revolution within to approach and to address the inner critic in a healthy way um, that is, uh, allows us to thrive and to also begin to heal the underlying physiological tension that's associated with our core sense of self. Well, there's a variety of strategies. I'm gonna talk about a few, and then I'm gonna lead um, us through <coughs> a couple in our meditation. In person-centered psychology, attuning to and acknowledging the underlying fears beneath the verbal utterances of the inner critic is considered to be a very successful strategy. So what does that mean? Rather than engaging in an ongoing battle where we listen to the inner critic and then we become exasperated with its unmeetable demands and we get caught up in a back and forth volley where we essentially try to silence it by uh, asserting our value over and over again uh, through mantras of self-acceptance and so forth. Uh, in person-centered experiential psychology, they talk about getting to uh, or unearthing the fears that are motivating the inner critic. To understand the inner critic is a protective strategy that ultimately what it is trying to prevent is the reoccurrence of painful abandonments that plagued our childhood. So if we search beneath the perfectionist or the taskmaster or the imposter syndrome, beneath all these manifestations and these uh, exceedingly exacting standards is ultimately a part of ourself that's very frightened of our being abandoned or being rejected by others and has simply developed an in unsuccessful, needless strategy to get this understandable human need met. The ultimate goal for them of the inner critic is that we don't once again re-experience some of the wounding events of maybe a family system or an educational system where the simple expression of yearning for uh, validation or care or emotional support was met with uh, indifference or neglect or a lack of care. And so the inner critic solution was to punish us for those natural needs and to uh, hold up a standard of self-reliance and perfectionism Whereas if we simply understand that's what's motivating 
the inner critic is a fear of shunning, rejection, abandonment, then we can talk to the inner critic in a way that is a very caring adult voice talking to a child that's terrified of being alone or um, disapproved of. And we can provide new strategies to protect ourselves in a healthy way, rather than unachievable standard, rather than relentless self-criticism, rather than relentlessly believing that we're an imposter, rather than holding ourselves to impossible lists of achievements. Instead, we can understand that the self, the inner critic simply is scared of being rejected, and we can show it through kind, compassionate visuals in our mind, okay, we're going to now, unlike what we had in childhood, we're now going to show our work uh, to people who are compassionate and kind, so that we won't experience the same traumatic rejection of the past. Or, okay, we will now ask for help from people who do want to give us help so that we can produce work that will not lead to shaming or uh, ridicule from others. So in understanding the underlying emotional needs of the inner critic, we can actually begin to develop new strategies and in that way, the inner critic starts to silence itself because its true concerns for safety and, uh, and connection are being met. The work of Penna Baker uh, has noted that writing out the inner critic without editing anything, putting it into the same kind of writing that you would write to a friend on a letter, um, actually inhibits the inner critic. And why is this? Well, the inner critic, when it's internal, uses the default mode network of the brain. It's ventral medial. And it actually doesn't turn thoughts into full uh, conversant sentences. It's just a couple of words repeating themselves over and over again. <coughs> When we write something out longhand, on the other, uh, contrastingly, when we write something out longhand, we actually have to engage a different circuit of the brain, Broca, Wernicke, uh, dorsal, lateral, and so forth circuits. And those are inhibitory, and they actually begin to switch off the ventral medial circuit. The ventral medial is directly connected to the amygdala, so it's very capable of activating feelings of fear and tension and distress. So when we write something out longhand and we engage different circuits that have no connection with the amygdala, it actually allows us to inhibit that inner critic. Positive reward for our engagements. Carol Dweck, a famous uh, positive psychologist, showed in the Journal of Personal and Social Psychology that fifth graders praised for their effort do better throughout the entire 
following educational history than kids that are only praised for achievement. So constant positive reinforcement, despite the outcomes, whether what we produce is good or appreciated or not, has been shown over time to lead to far greater developmental outcomes and also then leads to people who are capable of motivating themselves without a harsh pathological inner critic. There's a form of cognitive behavioral therapy called trial-based cognitive theory that uh, imitates internally the judicial process where it encourages people uh, to close their eyes and then to list out three reasons, uh, like a prosecuting attorney, that they're failing or not doing good enough to indulge the inner critic without any editing. And they're often encouraged to write out the three reasons or examples uh, that their inner critic is likely to repeat as symptoms of failure. And then once that's done, we practice enacting internally a defense attorney whose job is to list three reasons why we're actually doing perfectly okay in life and are not failing in any way. And in trial-based cognitive therapy, what's fascinating is at the end, the list, the list of three negative examples are almost entirely arbitrary and based absolutely on no realistic social standard. Whereas the three examples that we're doing okay are almost invariably very realistic and what cognitive behavioral therapy would call entirely appropriately attuned internal statements. And then finally, uh, the core shame visualization, where we bring to mind images of actions that we've done that have helped others. And we cultivate somatic states of ease, uh, perhaps by stimulating the vagal nerve by holding our hand on our heart center. And once we achieve a physical state of comfort, we swap out the image in our mind. So now that we hold instead an image of ourself as either a child or as an adult, while we link this internal image with positive somatic feelings of ease and comfort. This directly addresses the observation that the inner critic is in some way underpinned by a negative physiological feeling associated with our sense of self or our representation of self. One of the inevitable outcomes of an inner critic is that we avoid areas where we could come up short or be viewed negatively by others or areas that we don't have expertise or endeavors that we just don't feel very confident at. And so people who have a harsh inner critic um, very often rely on avoidance coping as a strategy for getting through life without making any kind of mistake or 
falling short in the eyes of others. So when we put these practices into place over and over again, one of the uh, uh, <clears throat> outcomes we should look for is a subtle shift in our ability to start being willing to engage in endeavors that we would normally avoid due to fear of looking foolish or uh, just because uh, in the past we not, we haven't associated uh, those endeavors with capabilities or personal strengths. Uh, and then the second milestone, of course, would be a diminishment of self-referential inner chatter in and of itself. So areas where we would normally uh, engage in a lack of confidence as marked by repetitive inner statements or visualizations of future, bad future outcomes, catastrophizing and so forth, one would begin to do or undertake these endeavors without relying on so much uh, inner self-evaluation. And so those would be the two direct outcomes that I would look for as a sense of progress in this, uh, in this domain. So that was my attempt to give a Dharma talk uh, with COVID. <laughs> so I thank you for putting up with that. And uh, now I'm going to lead you in a meditation where we're going to be <coughs> putting uh, one or two of those strategies into practice. And uh, so find a really comfortable seated position. And uh, if you, of course, would like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, um, uh, you can, uh, of course, consider Venmoing Dharma Punks with an X NYC or on the website Dharma Punks NYC. Uh, there's a PayPal button. So thank you for your consideration. And find a nice, comfortable seated position. Balancing the head over the shoulders and in a direct alignment with the sit bones so that you need to exert the least amount of muscular energy to keep yourself upright. You'll notice if your body is not balanced uh, well that you'll find that muscles in your back whether in the lower back or the upper back, will start to clench as a way to keep your body uh, uh, perpendicular. But if you have, if you find that just right balance, then all the effort that uh, the muscles need to do to keep us seated in an upright position begin to dissipate, and it's just the balance itself that uh, is keeping us upright. 
And uh, just bringing, summoning your awareness from the world around you. And try to bring awareness into your body through your eyes. And then see if you could expand the sense of awareness so that it's not just centered behind your eyes and between your ears, but that actually the sense of conscious awareness is something that's not assigned to any specific location in the body because it's actually not. It's many different regions of the brain are involved in the establishment of consciousness, not regions behind the eyes and between the ears only. And see if we can begin to expand our sense of awareness by lowering the viewer in our internal experience or the observer as it's more properly known down into the body as if there's a kind of spiritual elevator that you've entered and you're lowering yourself into the body, you could view, you could experience it as awareness literally lowering itself from the head now down into the throat, the chest, the sternum, the abdomen. Or you could experience it as expanding the mind. So still part of the mind feels like it's up in the head while there's a sense of consciousness expanding downwards. So consciousness feels less located in a single defined contracted area, but the sense of mind begins to grow. And one way to do this is to try to get as close as possible to the sensations of the breath in the body below to find the movement of inhalation and exhalation and to ride the sensations starting in the abdomen, the expansion and then the energy up into the chest and then 
the release of the chest and the energy dropping back down into the belly, which releases and becomes soft and pliant. That's one way to, to expand one's felt sense of where our observer resides. Another strategy is simply to find in your body the most comfortable peaceful sensation, whether uh, the palms of your hands or fingers or another location, just find the most relaxed sensation and then very slowly with each Inhalation, see if you can begin to spread the ease and comfort through the body, suffusing, kneading the pleasure throughout the body.
sometimes a wonderful strategy of cultivating a state of ease is to simply rest our attention on the most soothing sensation in the environment around us. And we're doing our meditation mostly with our eyes closed. So this might involve locating the most reliable, soothing sound in the distance, perhaps the sound of heating pipes or cars in the distance or wind, rain, ambient sounds, Or for some, there might be aromas. So at this point, for one exercise, while you keep your body as relaxed as you possibly can, bring to mind an example of your inner critic at its most corrosive where it's perhaps most punishing or dismissive. You'll find that when you welcome it and from memory conjure up one of its statements, it will be less painful than when it catches you off guard, when you're vulnerable. In the midst of a meditation where you've cultivated a state of ease and comfort, it's a much safer environment to tally with this part 
of our mental experience. And we're doing it with a very specific purpose in mind. So think of a recent self-criticism that you've leveled against yourself. Anything from a sense of shame at a mistake or a a goal not reached, or an ongoing accusation that you level against yourself. And just without any evaluation, just in your mind, repeat whatever that utterance might be. I'm not achieving enough. I eat too much. I'm not exercising enough. I'm not creative enough. Whatever. And just even observe how this statement affects your body, which up until this practice was hopefully in a state of ease. Just allow this statement to repeat itself without in any way responding to it. Just repeat it. And then if you can step back from the thought and ask, what is the fear beneath the statement? What is this inner voice of mine terrified will happen? Don't try to figure it out. Just go with hopefully the first sense of what's most frightening to this inner voice. Looking foolish to others, being abandoned, being ridiculed or being left behind in life. In my experience, the fear is something that just pops into mind. It's not something we have to work at. Just ask this voice, what is most frightening for us? And whatever appears, just work with it.
knowing the underlying emotional concern that motivates the inner critic, how could we protect ourselves from this outcome without relying on harsh statements or needlessly exacting standards or punishing uh, unattainable goals. See if we can engage the inner adult that's creative, knowing that beneath the critic is a fear of abandonment or rejection or loneliness or being seen as unskilled, a return to early periods perhaps where we had a learning difficulty or we fell behind in school. And just assuring this inner critic that we can come up with a much more suitable and healthy way to take care of ourselves. So let's put aside that exploration. And now we're going to take a different tact. What I'd like you to do is in your mind, if you can visualize someone that you've assisted or supported or act on the behalf of someone who's benefited from your endeavors. If not someone then some action that you feel proud of, some skill you've developed. If it helps put a hand on your heart center while you visualize this image in some way associated with your highest sense of self. Mm -hmm. 
And as you hold this image, whatever image comes to mind, if not something that you've achieved, something you'd like, some skill you'd like to develop that would be useful and beneficial. Try to allow an unforced but comfortable smile, full deep breaths into your belly and heart center and then long comfortable exhalations. And whenever your body starts to somatically approach a real state of both comfort and something associated with confidence or pride or worthiness, what I'd like you to do is bring to mind an image of yourself at any age that feels right. And simply hold in your mind the image of yourself and link it with this feeling of ease and comfort in your body. So now I'm going to ring the bowl and just when you hear the sound, take as much time as you need to slowly open your eyes and reorient to the world around you and uh, trying to bring any state of ease or comfort with you that you might have achieved.